Amen. We are in the book of Philippians. A new series we're starting this morning titled Enjoying Grace. Let's dive right into the first verse. We're not going to get far, so prep yourself for that. But let's at least set some context. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Acts closes with the Apostle Paul, who was a Roman citizen by birth, on his way from Jerusalem, which is where he was arrested, to Rome. Paul is on the way to Rome to stand trial, not just for his own actions and the spread of Christianity, but ultimately for Christianity itself. He'll stand trial before a madman, a man by the name of Caesar Nero. The year is approximately 62 AD. The apostle is being held in the capital city under house arrest. Though his conditions weren't weren't severe, it was house arrest, not the typical prison dynamic. Paul was under constant supervision, being guarded in a four-man, four-man uh, hour rotation. Roman soldiers constantly, four of them, being chained to both hands and his feet. As Paul awaits word, when he'll stand trial, the apostle wisely utilizes his time by writing some letters. These letters are known historically as his prison Epistles, fitting, he writes them from prison. Paul will pen a letter to Philemon, and he will write to three specific churches during his incarceration. He'll write to a church located in Ephesus, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Colossae, the Colossians, and this letter to the church in Philippi. Philippi was located in northeastern Greece. Aside from writing these letters, we also know that Paul ends up witnessing to the men that, that are guarding him. From Paul's perspective, I love this, and we'll unpack it as we read through his letter. Paul didn't see himself as a prisoner of Rome. Instead, as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, Paul saw that Rome was now his prisoner. Paul literally possessed a captive audience. He'll write letter that even those of Caesar's Caesar's household greet the brethren, communicating that, that those men chained to his His arms and his feet had to listen to him witness and to share his story. They had no chance. They were chained to the Apostle Paul. It would appear from the substance of this letter that upon hearing of Paul's incarceration, this Philippian church does something interesting. They catch wind that Paul has been arrested, that he's on his way to Rome. So they send a man by the name of Epaphroditus to Rome with financial aid intending to help with some of Paul's expenses. If you study all of Paul's letters, you'll come to see that this Philippian church would give such a financial gift on five separate occasions to the Apostle Paul. So Epaphroditus leaves Philippi. He has a financial love offering. He goes to Rome. He gives it to Paul. He hangs out for a little while. At some point, it's time for Epaphroditus to leave Rome and return to Philippi. As such, Paul writes this letter. In order to express his thanks, among other things, he gives it to Epaphroditus, and it's Epaphroditus' job to now leave Rome carrying this letter back to Philippi. This is why Paul addresses the note, we read it, 
to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. As you read through the Pauline epistles, you will discover that this letter to the Philippians reads radically different than all of the others. Paul, even in his introduction, he doesn't find a need or find it necessary to justify his apostleship. He doesn't go out of his way from the beginning to defend his character. As a matter of fact, at no point in the letter will Paul rebuke the Philippians for embracing false doctrine or false teaching, falling prey to, to heresy. Actually, it's, it's rather incredible that Paul never once in this letter mentions the word sin. Nor does he feel inclined to speak out against the works of the flesh or to speak against carnal living. Instead, all of the apostles' exhortations recorded in the letter to Philippians center on this group of people, these saints, going deeper in their love and their unity with each other. There is no question, this Philippian church, that Paul founded some 11 years earlier, it held a dear and special place in his heart. As we read through the letter, you're going to notice Galatians is a fighting epistle. From, from the jump, he dukes up and goes to task. But you'll, as you go through Philippians, sense just a tenderness. There's a warmth about Paul's letter, about his writing. As we work our way through the text, you'll see that Paul kind of gushes with both a joy and a deep longing for these friends. Now, in order to understand Paul's unique relationship with the Philippian church, which I really do think is vitally important if you're going to understand or grasp the substance of what he writes. This morning, I want to do something totally different. I listened to a lot of folks approach Philippians. They dove right into chapter 1, verse 1, but they never established some context. To me, you've got to know of Paul's experiences in Philippi and the people he encountered and the lives that were transformed and the things that happened there if you're going to then understand what he's writing. You've got to know who the saints are that he's addressing the letter to and the experiences he had with these saints. There's two passages in the book of Acts that record Paul's dealings in Philippi. Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 20. If you turn to Acts chapter 16. We're going to spend quite a bit of time this morning looking back through Paul's experiences. This is not going to be an expositional study through these things, but to set some context. The Apostle Paul, as you get to Acts chapter 16, he's in the midst of his second missionary journey. For context, he's with Silas. Timothy's about to join him. They begin their journey from Antioch with, with a very clear course of action. Paul's plan in the second missionary journey is to basically revisit the churches located in Asia Minor that he planted during the first trip. These are churches in the area of Galatia. So his plan is to go back and revisit all of these churches that he had started. However, as Paul then makes an arrangement to move from that region of Galatia into new uncharted territories, second missionary journey, Already accomplishing plan number one, Paul encounters an interesting obstacle. Look at Acts chapter 16, verse 6. We're jumping right into the narrative, but we read that now when they had gone through Pergia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden 
by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After traveling through Pergia, which is Antioch, all of Galatia, Paul's plan is to go further east into what we would call Asia, Asia proper. And yet something peculiar takes place as he's making these arrangements. We read, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. The Greek word forbidden implies that the Holy Spirit literally hindered them, resisted them. So in verse 7, after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them either. So passing by Mysia, they came to Troas. It's unlikely, it's, it's likely that after being unable to travel directly into Asia, Paul starts to map out a new course to, to access this area. But this plan also fails to materialize. Paul now recognizes, I don't get it, but the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to go this direction. He doesn't want us heading east. He doesn't want us going to Asia. The Spirit is behind all of these unspecified setbacks. So what does Paul decide? If I can't go east to Asia, this is the Holy Spirit. I'm recognizing God's hand. All right, I get the point. I'm not going to try to go that way. So he goes the opposite direction, west, to the port city of Troas. Now, we have no idea how the Spirit closed this door for Paul to venture into Asia. But one thing is evident. The Spirit was acting with intention. Always remember this, that a closed door is often the Holy Spirit's way of leading you to an open door that He wants you to walk through. Look at verse 9. We're told why Asia wasn't in the cards. Quote, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. So he's in Troas, just hunkered down. He gets this vision. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with Paul, saying, come over here to Macedonia and help us. <laughs> As Paul is in Troas, just waiting. Holy Spirit's resisted him from going east, so he's in Troas, he's waiting for some marching orders. He's sleeping, and in the night he gets this vision. There's this man, a Macedonian, and he's begging Paul to come to his area to help him. And it's in this moment that kind of everything crystallizes for the Apostle Paul. The Spirit had resisted him going into Asia. Why? Because the Spirit wanted the gospel to move the opposite direction, west, into where? The very heart of the Roman Empire. Most amazingly, Paul's obedience to this very vision will enable Christianity to make a significant leap onto a different continent, the continent of Europe. Verse 10, now after he had seen the, vis the vision, immediately we, now that's significant, we, it's a new pronoun, implying that Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, is literally with the apostle Paul now. So he's an eyewitness. So we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Somathrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city in that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for, for some days. Now just kind of pause. Paul's now got his marching orders, and he wastes no time getting after it. Luke says immediately, as soon as Paul wakes up, he's had this vision, he knows where the Lord wants him to go, they get, they buy some tickets, they board a boat, they're off. From Troas, Paul, and this is the crew, Silas, 
Timothy, and now Dr. Luke. They sail to Somatrace, quick layover, head to Neapolis, where they unboard, and then they walk 10 miles inland to the city of Philippi, which was the capital of a region known as Macedonia. City of Philippi. Just a few historical tidbits. The city was originally founded in 356 BC by Philip of Macedon. The city of Philippi would later become the retirement community for Roman military veterans. As a result of its strong Roman presence, the city of Philippi was dubbed an official colony of Rome, and money flowed in for renovations. As a matter of fact, the city of Philippi, having this particular designation of a, of a Roman colony, it meant that the soil of Philippi was viewed as Italian. Philippi flourished under Roman control, subject to, to, to the municipal, I'll get it out, municipal law of Rome, was directly governed by two officers appointed by the Roman Senate. It's a powerful, wealthy, dominant, Roman-controlled hub. So Luke says they get there, they settle, they chill out, they're in Philippi for some days, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the woman, the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Since on the Sabbath, Paul and his crew aren't visiting a synagogue, which was their typical custom when they went to a new city, but they instead go out of the city to a river where prayer was made. This tells us that there, there really wasn't much of a Jewish community in Philippi. According to the Talmud, if there were at least 10 men, Jewish men in a city, a synagogue would be made, so that it would be a place of not just worship, but kind of cultural identity. A place where they would raise their kids and teach their kids. And so, because there's no synagogue in Philippi, Roman-dominant, Gentile, uh, you know, the priorities, Gentiles, there's not many Jews. Really, the only representation is, is a group of women who would go to the river and just pray to the, the true God of Israel. So this is where Paul goes he finds these ladies. It took some time to find out where they, would, where they would go. He begins to preach the gospel. And we're told that a certain woman named Lydia, she heard. that She heard Paul's message. And then we're told that the Lord opened her heart and she received the things that Paul was sharing with her. Because of the description that Luke provides us in the text, it's likely Lydia, as was Paul, was a Roman citizen. She was from a wealthy family of Thyatira that specialized in purple dyes. They made purple clothing, which is probably why she's here in Philippi selling purple clothes, purple dye, purple garments to the Roman nobility. Most incredibly, it's Lydia, who is the first convert of Paul's ministry in Philippi, which is fascinating. We'll get to it in a minute. Verse 15, and when she and her household were baptized, so Lydia and her family get saved, they're baptized, she begged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now it happened as we went to prayer 
that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And she did this for many days. But Paul, Luke tells us, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And the Spirit came out that very hour. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, I love it. They end up staying, residing in Lydia's home. Lydia's house becomes the base of operations for Paul's ministry in this young church. Whether they went to prayer every Sabbath, we're not told. And yet what we do know is that for for many days, as Paul is sharing the gospel, as he's evangelizing, as he's meeting with people, the open square, there's this young girl, a slave girl, who's hounding them. She's possessed with the Spirit. And this happens continually. Paul's trying to teach, and this girl's freaking out. She's yelling out, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High. They proclaim the way of salvation, which was true. (laughs) This demon through this young girl was testifying, had them correctly pegged. They were servants, and they were proclaiming the way of salvation, but you can't imagine that this particular young lady is the type of PR you want as you're starting a church. Now, how long this took place, we have no idea, but I love the text. At some point, Paul's kind of over it. Day one, day two, this girl just keeps showing up. He starts to get, we're told, greatly annoyed. So much so that he's like, I can't take this anymore. And he turns and he casts the demon out of her. He liberates her. Now, I fully believe that it was always God's plan to liberate this young girl. And yet Paul knew that that the reaction, if he did this, it wouldn't be good. See, without the Spirit yielding a supernatural result, the girl wouldn't be of any value to her masters because she told the future. She was a soothsayer. And as a result, if if Paul freed this girl and she she didn't have this Spirit, that then, well, the masters wouldn't make money, it would turn the heat up for Paul and his ministry. His plan is to heal her, but he's waiting to kind of prioritize the, the ministry. A work needed to happen in Philippi, the formation of the new church, before he intentionally kicked the hornet's nest, which he knew liberating the girl from demon possession would undoubtedly do. And we see it, verse 19, that when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities, and they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or to observe. He heals this gal. He kicks the hornet's nest. And sure enough, opposition comes to the head. Paul's ministry in Philippi is bearing fruit, right? Lydia, Lydia's household, no doubt others. Later we'll read of the brethren. It's yielding fruit, but but it came at a cost. He heals this girl. He frees this girl from this demon that's been possessing her and tormenting her. And for that result, like what happens? They arrest him. They seize Paul and Silas. It's a violent seizing. And they drag them to the marketplace before the authorities. This is public. They accuse them of troubling the city 
by teaching customs that were not lawful for Romans to observe. A violent opposition coupled with an unfounded allegation. That's cause for trouble. That's a remedy for danger. In response to these charges, we then read verse 22, that the multitude rose up together against them. The magistrates tore off their clothes, commanded them to be beaten with rods, and when they laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. And having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, don't forget the grand crime that Paul is guilty of. Lydia coming to know Jesus, ministering to a group of women, freeing a slave girl of demon possession, you know, crimes and misdemeanors. And what does he get in return? He gets seized, dragged before the magistrates. We're told that, that they're stripped naked. That's what, what we're told. The magistrates tore off their clothes, laid them bare, the humiliation. And then they're beaten with rods publicly to the point that Luke then makes the observation that, that, that they laid many stripes on them. Luke, an eyewitness, is saying, I lost count. I mean, they're beaten. They're, they're bruised and they're bloody. And then they're thrown into the inner prison. It should be pointed out that Roman prisons were often nothing more than subterranean pits. They were cold and damp and dark and filthy and poorly ventilated. And since the jailer was commanded to keep them securely, not only are Paul and Silas' hands fastened to a wall, but their feet are, are fastened, we're told, in the stocks, which was an fo ancient form of torture. Terrible situation. The despair, the pain, the agony, the uncertainty, and yet look at their reaction. Verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Now, just pause. This word but that we find in a literary sense, Luke is placing the reaction of Paul and Silas in context. Context to what? In context to just everything we just read about what's happened to them. Like his point is Luke is trying to make sure the audience, us, that we realize how absolutely abnormal it was that following a violent arrest without provocation, false accusations without reason, an unmerciful beating without cause, and an unjust imprisonment, as if they were criminals of the worst kind, Paul and Silas respond to those things to their circumstances by what? By praying and worshiping, singing hymns to God. Like Luke wants you to know this word, but it's, this is bizarre. That's what he's saying. Their reaction is, is, is abnormal. These men resisted the natural urge to do what we do. If you had been Paul or Silas, how would you have, have processed that turn of events? Probably not very well. You would have maybe doubted your purpose. What did I do wrong? God, what did I do? You probably maybe be inclined to take pity on yourself. Like, woe is me. I'm just a humble servant. 
Look at what's happened. Maybe no one in this room, but I can imagine that people might complain about their plight. This isn't fair. God, why me? Maybe you would have grown angry over your state of affairs. A desire for vindication. And yet, in spite of all of that, what do Paul and Silas do? They, they make a decision that they would rely on the God behind their circumstances. And how do they do this? They're hurting. Don't miss it. They've been beaten. They're bloody. They're bruised. They're probably sitting in a pile of feces at the bottom of this prison. All they've done is follow Jesus. All they've done has been faithful to Jesus. All they've done was respond to a call, come to a city, and just tell people about salvation. That's all they've done wrong. And here they are, finding themselves in this predicament. And instead of complaining or being angry or seeking vengeance, they come to, they come to God. The God behind their circumstances they say, you have a plan, and you have a purpose. And they, they, they come before him in prayer. Probably through their tears and their torment, they begin to sing and worship. It's amazing. And this detail, that while this was going on, that the prisoners were listening to them, that's not an accident. Like, I can imagine the sound coming from the bowels of this prison around midnight was the strangest noise anyone had ever heard come from the torture room. You see, the reaction to Paul and Silas, their praise and their worship, it caught everyone's attention. Why? Because it was abnormal. The prisoners listening would have to think, how could these men praise God when the natural reaction would be to curse him? That would set the stage for something radical. I hope you know that your life demonstrates a greater manifestation of the supernatural power of God when your circumstances are difficult as opposed when everything is just hunky-dory. Like the reason the world listens with greater attention when a Christian suffers, this is why. Because they want to see if your reaction will be any different than their own. And if it isn't, then what does your belief really accomplish? You crush a flower, it reveals a fragrance. When our lives suffer, there should be a fragrance. And the world catches the scent. Why? Because they're like, that reaction isn't what I would do, meaning whatever they have, I need. That's how this works. Well, verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake and the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loosed and the keeper of the prison awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing that the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. As Paul and Silas are singing to the Lord during the midnight hour, we're told suddenly, without warning, there was a great rattling. A great 
earthquake that was so strong that it shook the prison, but was also supernatural. Because, well, okay, maybe a, an earthquake would, would open the doors. I've never heard of an earthquake that, that loosened people's chains. And then the scene is chaotic. We're told that awaking from his sleep, seeing that the doors were open, the keeper of the prison, believing everyone's run away, fled, he decides that he's going to take his own life. Now, why would he do that? In Rome, under Roman law, the penalty for allowing a prisoner to escape your custody was that the soldier responsible would assume the escapee sentence. So this prison keeper, realizing the severity of the situation, he decides that it would be better to kill himself than suffer the humiliation of being executed for allowing prisoners to escape, though it was not his fault. Consider the scene. Though Paul and Silas have been thrown into prison unjustly, they've maintained their godly character. They've been praying and worshiping the Lord. In the midst of their worship, the ground shakes. An earthquake opens the doors. It loosens their chains. If it's you and I, what do we do? We get up. Lord, thank you for that. I'm out. And yet, that's not what, what happens. Like While it would have been easy to have seen the providence of God at display, making way of their escape, Paul catches the jailer. He sees him, and he realizes that if they, if they were to leave, the jailer would be in bad trouble. Which is why Paul then he cries out with a loud voice as the man draws his sword. He says, do yourself no harm. We haven't left. We're still here. It's amazing. I'm convinced that as Paul saw the scene unfolding, he couldn't help realize two things. First, that the earthquake was not intended to be a means of escape. The earthquake was designed to create an opportunity so that they could minister to this Philippian jailer. And speaking of the jailer, it's in my opinion. So Paul has come to Philippi. Why? He's received a vision in Troas. A vision of whom? A Macedonian man. Truth? Paul has come to Philippi, and he's engaged in ministry, fruitful ministry. To whom? Nothing but women at this point. Lydia, her household, the slave girl, those are the only specific people we have mentioned. Meaning that Luke now wants us to realize that who's the man in the vision? The earthquake, it rattles the the doors, it loosens the chains. They could have led, fled, they could have escaped. Paul sees a man in desperation about to kill himself and boom, in that moment. Oh, snap. That's the man. That's the Macedonian. I love it. So we're told, Paul calls out for him. The jailer called for a light. It's a torch, not a cigarette. And he ran in. That was a joke. You could have laughed. I could have gotten a little bit of something. Just keeping you with me. He ran in. He fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out. And the man asked Paul, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> I love it. If there, had, if there hadn't been any doubt in Paul's mind like what, what the purpose of all of this was, like the purpose of his circumstances and his situation, like, it immediately went away when, when the jailer, do yourself no harm, and he comes running over. 
and he has one question, one thing on his mind in that moment. What must I do to be saved? Talk about an open door, right? The man wants the Apostle Paul to tell him how to be saved. Wouldn't that make ministry to your co-workers or neighbors a lot easier? You know, instead of Instead of all the, the legwork of you know, laying the foundation and trying to build a reputation so that you can speak into someone's life, if, if that boss who you've been wis- witnessing to who's just totally in desperate need of being saved, who's completely, their life's a nightmare. If they just came to you one day, fell on their knees and like, listen, I need you to tell me how to get saved. Man, that's every evangelist's dream. So what happens? Verse 31. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour. The jailer took Paul and Silas the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and his family were baptized. Now when he brought them into his house, he set food before them and rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his house. The jailer asks a simple question, what must I do to be saved? And Paul responds with a very simple but profound answer. (laughs) Friend, there's nothing you can do to be saved. There's no work. There's no action. There's no activity. Instead, there's a belief that changes life. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And that's what we're told. But then Paul expounded from the word, no doubt telling him about Jesus about Jesus died for his sins and was crucified but rose the third day, presents the gospel, God's grace, and not not merit, not our deservingness, but our unworthiness, and that being okay with Jesus. We're told now that in addition to Lydia, her family, the slave girl, this jailer, and his whole family, they believe and they were baptized. And I love it. All of this happens when? Sometime after midnight. They have a 3 a.m. baptism. Well, when it was day, the magistrate sent the officer saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart, go in peace. But Paul said, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now they want to put us out secretly. No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. Now Paul's concern here is that while the magistrates had come to recognize that both he and Silas were innocent of the charges that had been levied against them, releasing them now secretly when they had been accused openly, it wouldn't have set the public record straight. Paul wisely understood that the only way to keep them, their reputation, their name from being tarnished, which would have affected, right, the new church, he demanded a public acquittal. Yeah, I know we're innocent. You now know we're innocent. The problem is, is everybody else doesn't know we're innocent. If you release us secretly when we were accused openly, our reputation is still going to be as if we were guilty and somehow got off. So Paul does what? He lets it slip. That they had been beaten and thrown into prison without cause as uncondemned Romans. That was a no-no. So the officers, when they were told, when they told these words to the magistrates, they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So Paul and Silas went out of the prison, entered the house of Lydia when they had seen the brethren. So there's been more fruit than what's just recorded. They encouraged them 
and departed. After getting what he wanted, following their release from prison, Paul and Silas, they returned to the house of Lydia, where they're staying, but also where the church was meeting. They visit with the brethren, some parting words, some exhortations, then they leave. Did did you notice something? The whole passage begins with, we, but now we're told what? They departed. That's not an accident, and it's important for us. This means that Paul, he decides with intention to leave behind Luke. To do what? To be the pastor of this young church. There was a group of people here that needed shepherding, that needed encouragement, that needed to be taught. There were some decisions that would, be ha- that, that would have to make concerning leadership as the tr- church grew, structure and formation. So Paul's like, we got to go, we got to bounce. Silas and Timothy, you guys roll with me. Luke, you need to stay behind. And so Luke ends up pastoring this church. And while Paul departs Philippi, after a short time, you do need to note this is not his last visit. According to the first several verses of Acts chapter 20, during his third missionary journey, and directly following an extended period of time ministering in the Grecian city of Ephesus, Paul does return back through Macedonia, specifically Philippi, for the purposes of visiting with this church. Now, it's a short stay. We actually have no record of anything that took place during Paul's visit. But one thing. We came to Philippi. They left. Luke remains. For a year, two years probably in all likelihood, four to five years. Luke is pastoring this Philippian church. But then in Acts chapter 20, Paul comes back through the region and we get a pronoun shift again. Back to we. Luke, as Paul comes back through Philippi, rejoins the Apostle Paul in his missionary travels. The implication being that now the church has been established has solid leadership, that they're growing and they're healthy to the point that Paul's like, you don't need Luke anymore. Local leaders can take control and we'll move on, which which does set some context when we get into Paul referencing the saints, but also the bishops and the deacons. My point in this, my point at looking at Paul's history in Philippi, if I can summarize it, I'll, I'll say that there's really two reasons why it's important. First, from a a large standpoint, background. Background always provides greater color and context. It's just the truth. This Philippian church was important. It was one of the most significant churches Paul had ever planted. Why? Because it was the first church founded in Europe. Do you realize, apart from Paul going to Philippi and this church being formed, None of us would be here if Paul had gone to Asia, east, as opposed to going west. Western civilization would look radically different. This movement, this church, it marks something amazing, which is astounding when you consider that that Paul, this was not strategic, was it? Paul had no thought at all to go to Europe, did he? 
He had no intention to go to the heart of the Roman Empire. Paul's whole desire is to go the opposite direction into Asia, to take the gospel into Asia. He gets resisted once. He's like, I'm still going. I'm just going to find another route. God's like, no. And he stops him again. Paul had no plan, no foresight. This was not, as George Bush would say, strategery. It was not strategic. In some regards, it's purely an accident that Paul ends up going this direction. The Spirit had to hinder him, had to resist him, had to kick him in the shin, be like, you're going the wrong way. I think that Paul is fond of the Philippians because he knows that everything that happened there had nothing to do with him. That the work that God had done in Philippi was completely a work that God had done in Philippi. He had a vision in Troas. See, there was no question in, in Paul's mind that Philippi was where the Spirit was leading him. Paul. Paul had a love for this church because what God had accomplished in Philippi, it marked a significant turning point in his own life. Now, I'm saying that without giving you a lot of context, but you can study this on your own. One of Paul's great frustrations in his first missionary journey was the Jews. <laughs> Paul and the Jewish people had this toxic relationship. Paul goes to Galatia, which is not far from Israel, and the churches that are being founded were predominantly Jewish, sprinkled with Gentiles. And Paul's constantly having a, resi a resistance. He's getting people doubting him and backbiting and, and all types of heresies and complications. You see, Paul was never called to the Jew. And yet in his first missionary journey, he goes to Jews. The second missionary journey begins with him going back to the Jewish areas of Galatia. But then now, sending him the other direction, he gets to Philippi and what does he not find? He doesn't find Jewish people at all, right? To the point there's no synagogue. He bumps into Lydia and some women praying. The slave girl's not a Jew. The jailer's not a Jew. None of these people's, people are Jewish. You see, Philippi begins a shift in Paul's ministry, his life. He's no longer like, I'm going to the Jews. From this point forward, he goes where? Deeper and deeper and deeper into the Gentile world. In essence, Paul in Philippi sees that his call that he was the apostle to the Gentiles, which is why he's so fond of this place. But there's another reason that I think it's important to look back at Paul's time in Philippi before you dive into the letter. The letter, it's warm, it's tender, it's personal. But to, to, to get that, to see how these things ooze out of Paul's heart, you need to know who the saints and Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, actually were. So often when we read these letters, we forget that they're written to actual people. When Paul's writing to the Philippians, the Philippians, there are faces behind that one word. Relationships and connections and experiences. You see, when Paul thought, when he sat down with, with pen and quill and paper and parchment, and he's going to write to these folks... There's no question in my mind, who does he initially think of? As he, as he, oh, the saints. Oh, Lydia. What a blessed lady. And her family. And how they opened their, their home to us. How gracious that they had been to strangers. 
the work that God had done in her heart. She opened her doors to the church. The church was meeting there. He's thinking back to the early days. What wonder. I'm sure as Paul writes to the Philippians, the saints in Philippi, he thought of that slave girl who'd been tormented, abused, taken advantage of, until Jesus liberated her from possession. No question. As Paul is writing, he's thinking, 11 years have passed. I wonder how she is. I'm sure a husband and a family. Jesus so radically transformed her life. How glorious. Beyond, beyond all of this, in writing to the Philippian saints, Paul thought of the jailer and his family that night. What a crazy night that had been, right? The beating, could have done without that. But then the opportunity that it afforded, that earthquake, that was weird. I remember seeing him in his desperation and how he wanted to know how to be saved and received it. I'm sure Paul thought, man, God works in mysterious ways. Paul was invested in this church in Philippi. He had personally suffered in order to see the church birthed and established. He'd made sacrifices for their well-being, even going so far as to leave behind his personal doctor to pastor this young church so that they could be healthy. Paul loved the Philippians, these believers, dearly. It's why it's also clear they reciprocated his love with an equal fervor. And the years that followed Paul's visit, the church blossomed. The foundation Paul laid remained. The gospel was changing lives. God was working through the Philippians. As we close, and in context to Paul's experiences, he pins this letter seeking to accomplish three goals. First, Paul wants them to know, without a shadow of a doubt, how thankful he is of them. You'll get this in the letter. Not only is he grateful for the work that God was doing through them, but their willingness to support him financially, to partner with him in the ministry, was humbling. I thank God upon every remembrance of you. The second goal is that Paul will write in order to address an honest concern. Now think about it. In Paul's Philippian imprisonment, what had happened? (laughs) He'd been supernaturally freed. I'm sure it was then only logical that these believers wondered why. Now in Paul's Roman incarceration, the same thing hadn't happened. It was was as Epaphroditus comes back and he's, they're worried. Is God's blessing off of his life? Why hasn't God freed him like, like God had done in Philippi? And so in this letter, we'll see that Paul is going to explain that God actually takes two very different approaches when it comes to delivering his kids from suffering. Sometimes God grants deliverance from our trials, while in other instances, his grace is designed to deliver us through our trials. In Philippi, it was from, but in Rome, it's through. And he'll unpack that in the letter. And finally, Paul writes, because he wants these believers to know that because their joy was based in the amazing grace of God and not their present circumstances, They truly could rejoice in whatever situations they found themselves facing. Grace enables peace and joy. The vertical peace that's discovered when one 
bases their spiritual life on God's grace, it enables that person unspeakable joy regardless of your horizontal environment. The grace God gives this way yields peace, and it's that peace that no matter what I find around me, I still can have joy. (laughs) As you'll study and see in this letter, the Apostle Paul, he's writing from a Roman cell. He's unsure if he would live or face a brutal and swift execution. But Paul still was at peace because he was presently enjoying grace. And that's what the letter is all about. So Father, Lord, we ask.